What is a smart city? Our civilization has reached a point where we can no longer think bigger. We now have to think smarter. All around the world, there are transformative cities doing incredible things, and it's time to sit up and listen. It's time to make a difference for ourselves and for our planet. My name is Anna. I'm a musician, writer, and creator who, like most people alive in the 21st century, lives a life ruled by technology. And this is my mom, chief innovation officer, tech entrepreneur, social equality pioneer. Welcome to San Leandro! We are traveling the world. At least that's what we were going to be doing. It's a tale as old as time, right? You set out to do a TV show exploring what a modern smart city is, and then a pandemic happens, and you're forced to pivot to a podcast. We've all heard those stories, right? Right. Okay. Anyway, I'll stop making this awkward for all of us. My name is Anna Acosta. I am a writer, musician, and general rabble rouser. And I'm here with my mom, Debbie Acosta, who, apart from being my mom, is a former chief innovation officer and glass ceiling breaker on that particular front, a longtime neighborhood activist, and one of those PTA moms. Oh my God, you said PTA. I'd completely forgotten. Yeah, that's where I kind of. Was I not allowed to say PTA? No, it was like that was where my social (laughs) activism started. You're right. It was having children that started it all. She never missed. Thanks for the introduction. She never missed a meeting, not one. And so this is the Smart City Diaries podcast, supposed to be a TV show. We have not let that dream die. But in the meantime, we're doing what we can do from the safety of our homes. And I will be generous and call it our home studios. And I realize it's a little weird that we're spending the most, the bulk of the first episode of a tech podcast not actually talking about tech. You've not been bamboozled. This is a tech podcast. We pinky promise. The thing is, when you're talking about systemic problems, which we are, smart cities are trying to fix systemic issues here, people. We can't skip over that part. There's Literally no point to skipping over that part. This whole thing would be a failed exercise. If you are trying to diagnose a problem and you just go based off the symptoms and you never actually get to the root cause, then all you're going to be doing is chasing symptoms indefinitely. So the reason that we are so off topic on this is because we're not actually off topic. This all connects to itself. And the fact of the matter is, we got to know what the problem is before we can fix it. And we're going to be exploring that over the next season and beyond. But the question that we're really trying to address here is almost more, it's it's almost much larger than that and much smaller, much more specific at the same time. Because what we're trying to do here is identify how we fix humanity. I know, no small task, right? We should actually know we should have that knocked out by next Thursday. But in all seriousness, It's a complicated issue. So this is going to be a little bit different than our regular episodes. What we want to do today is we want to establish a framework. And so that brings me to you, Mom, because as a former chief innovation officer and as someone who's worked in cities for most of your professional life, you probably can answer the question better than anybody else that I could think of. So I'm going to ask, what is a smart city? In fact, many people have asked me that question. From magazines to professionals to every, what is a smart city? Well, the standard answer I would have given you is, well, a smart city is a smart city that is connected. Its people are connected. Its businesses are connected through fiber optics to the internet, through fiber optics. that basic. 
That's that basic. But not only is it the connections that are important, but the data that comes off of those connections. So when you think of a smart city, you think about smart buildings and smart energy, smart cars, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, smart data, smart transportation, green energy, telemedicine, stop me if you've heard this stuff, blockchain, <laughs> cryptocurrency, right? All of this stuff is dependent upon being connected to the internet and data resulting from that. Now, the wisdom of the past has been, well, with data, cities can make better decisions. They can be more efficient about it. They can maybe reduce labor costs because they don't actually have to send somebody out into the field every time a light gets broken. And in fact, the city will get advance notice of that light broken because those lights are connected to the internet and through a data system that collects information. So that is in fact what a city in the past and I say that in the past, it's in my past, although I think for many people that is still a current definition of what a smart city is. How do cities determine which initiatives are smart? What, how do cities actually go about determining which data matters? Well, that's a darn good question. So cities in and of themselves have to be fiscally responsible, right? Mm. So that cities old are... Yeah, well, cities have to balance their budget is what that means. So quite often, cities will first respond to a pain point that they have, um, perhaps meaning the maintain- city, it's like the city as a government body. That pain point, or a city that pain point, or, no, or, okay, not so not a pain point for the city, the people. Pain point for the city, the government entity. The government entity. So let me give you an example, a very, very basic one. Mm -hmm. Potholes, right? Mm. Every mayor and city manager is expected to be able to be accountable to their citizens for potholes because potholes destroy cars. Yes, they do. In its essence, we've all had experience, right? Yes, we have. Having our wheel fall into a hole and then all sorts of bad things happen to that car. Shout out to the city of Inglewood. But nowadays, what's happening is that I've been working with some young people who have been very actively working with drones in cities. So by deploying a drone to sweep over streets, it's quite possible from the air to be able to detect potholes before they even become a problem. So by detecting those potholes, and if you can group them together, then you can send out your staff to fix those potholes in a way that's much more efficient. So they're going out to attack, not to fix, not just one pothole, but a bunch of potholes at the same time. So what kind of questions does that leave us when we think about drones flying over our cities? I mean, I could completely understand why you'd be mistrustful. I mean, I'd be mistrustful of a drone that was just a government drone just lurking in my neighborhood, spying on people, because to me that feels like there are implications how do we say that kind of public surveillance? There's I, I, what Fifth Amendment implications it feels like for me with that because I there's no unless the city the city doesn't have a warrant. Sure, it's public property and I understand that, but it just feels like there's a reasonable expectation of privacy that this would inevitably violate. And 
there's not enough trust with the government for me to not assume certain city governments will intentionally violate people's civil rights with this technology. I'm supposed to believe cops won't use these drones to just spy on people in black and brown neighborhoods? I'm supposed to believe that just because the city says so? They also say they don't use facial recognition, and they do. So, like, riddle me, I don't know. It's just... So now we're starting to... We're starting to look at how we should be defining smart better and differently. Because it's really, really clear that disadvantaged communities are the first to be impacted by climate change, right? Because they live in the most vulnerable areas. They're the least and likely to... And you won't be to, protected from it. And they're the least likely to have access to the technology and information that they need to insist that their city protect them. Yes. What we're going to be looking at in this series is is really challenging some of the preconceptions that we have about who gets access to smart technology, why it's important, and what cities, what responsibilities do cities have for ensuring that all of their citizens are able to live their best lives, right? Because if we remember what the Constitution, and we're talking about the United States right now. Because we live here. And because the U.S. Declaration of Independence said very clearly that we have unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So if that's true, then what responsibility do our cities have to ensure that all of us are able to pursue a life of happiness, to live our best lives. But I first want to talk about what the responsibilities cities have, just, just baseline responsibilities that cities have towards the people that live in their, in their communities, right? So at the very baseline level, you need to have access to water, to power, to housing, to education, because that's no longer optional in our society. Education is a baseline matter that all of us should have access to. So these are basically baseline needs that cities should be able to provide equitably, whether you are a man, a woman, whether you self-identify as bisexual, whether you are uh, young, you are old, if you have that need, the city should be able to provide that resource for you. So that's baseline level. Then we get to the next level of safety, right? So public safety is a huge issue for us in America right now. What does it mean if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, um, if you're a gender that doesn't to identify as man or woman, what does that mean in terms of public safety? Then there's cybersecurity. There's water security. There's making sure that all these things, there's the safety of the road, right? There's so, and it we in cities- It just goes on and on. It goes on and on. And we in cities have not universally said, hey, we want to make sure that these resources are equitable and accessible to all of our citizens. All we have to do is take a look at Flint, Michigan, and the water crisis that happened there when city officials decided to switch the um, source of the water from the Great Lakes to the local Flint River, which was corroded and full of chemicals. And when that actually went through the pipes, it loosened all of the lead in the pipes, corroded it, and people were 
drinking and drinking they were drinking and bathing in lead water drinking and bathing in lead water and it was a lot flint michigan is largely a, a a black american community right so the decisions that officials make the transparency we hope that smart cities start to make it more transparent make it more accessible for people because ultimately we just want to belong Right. We just want to feel like the city that we live in, the community that we live in appreciates us, sees us as a worthwhile individual and allows us, gives us the support we need to pursue the best dreams that we have. I am sure that it is unimaginably difficult to run a city. I'm sure that that is absolutely true. Yeah. But and in a time of covid, there's no money. Well, there's no money and there's also no roadmap. I mean, there might have been a roadmap at one point, but Trump threw it in the dumpster. So, you know, skating right past that very fun, recent part of U.S. history, which we will not always skate a past. Which we will not. But today, for the sake of of our editor, we're going to move forward. Right. Um, Basically, acknowledging that it is a you might even say impossible task because it's probably as impossible to run a city in a way that pleases literally every single citizen. But that's not really the goal. To me, it's you said that cities have a responsibility to take care of people because as people, we need other people. And I agree with that. But I also think from a more practical standpoint, cities owe its people something because they're funded by taxes. Simply put, governments don't exist without the people. And if I living under the poverty line pay more taxes than our corporations do, which is just flat out true, let alone our billionaires, which don't get me started on, because again, for the sake of brevity, I must move on. The government has a very difficult job to do, but it has no reason for existing other than doing that job. And this is all government, but we're talking about city governments. We're talking about local governments because that is where we see the most day-to-day change. That's where we see the most day-to-day impact for citizens. Exactly. I think the people in that inside these governments have completely lost, they lost the plot. They have no idea that their purpose is to serve. Even though, and it's weird because I do know that there are dedicated civil servants who genuinely want to help and they want to make change, but they get bogged down in the bureaucratic minutiae of running a government. And I think what ends up getting lost is people are so tired and beaten down that they forget that your job is to frickin' help. Your job is to provide a service, and it is your job to do that service, whether or not you, the citizen is being combative, whether or not you like the citizen, whether or not you're having a bad day. And if our government in its current form, if it can't perform that function, then it does not have a purpose. Whenever we talk about social issues, we talk about budgets, and we don't talk about humanity, but when we talk about committing you know, atrocities in other countries, also known as war, suddenly there's always money for that. There's always money for military expansion. So it's like our problem is that we are not human. It's not just that we're not human first. It's that we're humans last. But I do want to acknowledge that there are government officials, there are city workers who are just doing the best they can, and they have really hard jobs. But unfortunately, when you're talking about systemic inequality, which we are, it doesn't matter how good someone's intentions were. It does not matter that someone is doing their best when they're part of a system that ultimately commits harm. 
And that is what is so freaking difficult about having these conversations because people hear that and they think, oh, you're calling me bad. It's like, no, but I am having questions about the things that you choose to do. And if you hear that you're committing harm and you choose to continue to do the things anyway and you're more resentful about the correction than you are about being told, oh, crap, I'm doing something I didn't realize harmed people, then your goodness may come into question, yes, which I think is why people work so hard to avoid hearing things like this. Because once you've heard it, you have to acknowledge it. (laughs) So this actually brings up uh, something very interesting that I heard this morning. So I was listening as I was preparing for this this morning. I like to relax and listen to one of my favorite people, Brene Brown, who uh, is is really, who has been researcher on shame um, and on the importance of, shoot, I what is that doggone thing she always does? Ah, You can look it up if... Because we can stop. It's a podcast. Right. We can no, pause it's a podcast. if you need to look something up. <laughs> um, um, the, the power of vulner- vulnerability and how we don't get forward. We cannot move forward unless we're vulnerable. And the reason that vulnerability is important is because I'm here today as a baby boomer. So we haven't even talked about the generational gap right here and (laughs) how important that is, right? In terms of the ability to access words, even to describe the situations or the problems that our generation faces. We'll talk a lot about that. For me, it was gender issues. I didn't have the words for the kinds of things that women go through. To even say the word rape would cause all sorts of consternation when I was working for government. And to some extent, it still does. People still... And it still does. And of course it still does, because this is still raw. Everything we've been going through the last year with Black Lives Matter, the ability to use words and to say words that we haven't been able to before is all very new, very raw for us, and we're just in the middle of it. So I want to say to you, Anna, and to our viewers out there, that I'm here to get it right. I'm not here to be right. Maybe this is just my personal experience. Getting ready to talk to a city official feels like you have to put on your war paint. And you have to make sure that you have all of your little ducks in a row when you don't even, and some ducks you don't even know are there. Because there will be trick ducks. And if you do not have your trick ducks ready for their trick ducks, then the entire thing is going to be your fault. And by the way, there'll somehow be a fine in it for you, even though you just were minding your own business coming up trying to get help from the city. I often wonder if that is a generational difference or whether that's just a I'm I'm a white person, so I feel entitled to access my city officials. Talk to me more about that, especially from your generation. I think it's as simple as most of human impressions come from our experiences. And the reason that so many people feel this hostility coming from government entities is just because that's always been our experience. It ranges from everything from postal workers being furious with me for not understanding how to mail a package because they didn't cover it in school and it's kind of confusing if you've never done it before. Or the city of Los Angeles penalizing people for claiming tax write-offs for trying to do freelance work by saying that they've started a small business. And by the way, now you owe us $700 for your small business license, even though you don't have a small business or weren't even living in the city during the tax year in question. These are all experiences I've personally had. Don't get me started with law enforcement. The reason that 
there's so much that there's percept this perception of us versus them between citizens, especially poor citizens, especially younger citizens, especially non-white citizens, disabled citizens, queer citizens, you name it. The reason this distrust exists is because we are met with hostility at every possible level. There's never a human being that you can talk to who's more interested in humanity than the rules. And the rules are often convoluted and designed specifically to entrap poor people, of which most young people are. If Honestly, if you want to boil down to why young people are so universally having trouble, it's because most of us are poor. And we don't really have a way out of being poor. So that surprises my generation to hear that, right? Because I grew up, even though as a woman, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life after graduating from college, I really thought that my options were, I don't know, stewardess, airline stewardess, which seemed the most exciting option compared to being a teacher or a mom, or whatever else my limited options were. But the reality was, college, I went to UC Berkeley. It was $683 a semester. I don't know what it is now, but it's thousands of dollars. Well, when I was a decade ago, a little more than a decade now, when I was looking at the UCs, it was, uh, let me see, what was it? I think if you're in-state, which means you don't pay tuition, it was still going to be, I think, about $20,000 a semester. If it was that bad a decade ago, it's going to be worse now. Gen Z doesn't have a chance with this crap. So let's bring this back to what a city is supposed to be providing for its people, right? Baseline, very basic. In order for us to be able to even begin to imagine living our best lives, we have to have a good education. And what I'm hearing you say, it, 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 I think I've told you this story. I learned how to write a check in second grade, Ms. Fletcher's class. She, I have no idea why she asked us to do that. But I remember very clearly, and that lesson stuck with me. She even had a huge check at the front of the class and it stayed there the entire year. This is how you write a check. So I never lost that. What I'm hearing you say is your generation perhaps did not, does not feel like it got access to the same kind of very basic information. There's this divide between communities and the cities that are supposed to be the same thing. And a lot of that does come from the fact that government workers tend to basically behave as though we are lucky, the citizens are lucky to even have that much help, even though our tax dollars completely fund their activities. Not everybody, because we're obviously... Well, we're and right. I don't know if it was, I don't know if that was the experience that older people had. I don't know how much of that is impacted by the race of the older person or by the gender. I, I mean, obviously it's all impacted, but all we have is our experiences. And I can just tell you, as you know, the person that I am at 30 years old, what I have experienced, what I've seen, what my friends and my peers have experienced and seen. That's all I can speak to. And the world has changed. You and I have talked about this for a long time, but it's only been the last couple of months that it's really hit home to me that the experience of the younger generations is different from mine. You know, we've talked about the avocado toast eating generation. I have never believed that millennials were lazy, 
But there's been a part of me that also is listening to other people saying, oh, that generation, they just, you know, they just don't want to work hard. They just, you just want to play games all day. They just like their, you know, table tennis, whatever it is. And I've, that has not been my experience, but I have seen a lot of my generation opine in that way. And that so is extremely... That's it's extremely troubling to me, and I think the audience that we are going to appeal to are those that know that something's wrong. They feel that something's wrong, but they don't know what it is or how to articulate it and how to fix it. And I have to tell you the power of words, right? You have, oh, from the moment you were three years old, oh boy. and I saw you sitting in front of that whiteboard, I'm three years old. Your brother, bless his heart, six years old, still couldn't write. Nerd. But three three years old. Yeah, well, he's doing fine in now. In a different way. He's a computer nerd. In a different nerd. way. <laughs> yeah, he's a computer nerd. But at three years old, you had a whiteboard, and you had, I saw you sitting in front of it, patiently, A, B, C, and all your little friends, all your little animals and, and cars with names and everything that you had around the whiteboard, and you were going to determined to teach yourself and them the power of language. So at the age of three years old, I saw that, and I, I'll never forget. I wish I'd taken a picture, I'll, but it's in my head, that picture frozen in my it's head. It's in my head, too. You've described it so many times. It's like, it's an amazing, it was an amazing thing. And then eventually, of course, you found your voice literally through singing, right? And, and now writing songs. So you have found your voice in a way that I have struggled for years to find my voice. So in the future, we'll talk a lot about, much more about my experiences as a, uh, you know, baby boomer. And when I came up against those kinds of stressful things, like having been raped in 1985 outside a BART station, and the experiences that I had with public safety officers at that time were not that pleasant either. It's very disturbing to me here to, to me to to hear now that perhaps it's not it's not only hasn't improved but perhaps has gotten worse in some ways. So in some ways. So how can so ultimately we're going to explore here how cities can re-examine their priorities because I know city workers for the most part they want to do well they're just under resourced. So if we pare back our expectations a little bit in terms of serving communities we've always traditionally served, which are those that are the most empowered, whether it's economic empowerment or culture or whatever it is, and rethink about our entire community, how do we provide those baseline methods? And how can technology help us do that? It has to be able to help us do that. We've seen technology get weaponized to satisfy the worst impulses that humanity has. Technology has also been used in incredibly wonderful ways and, and and will continue to be used in incredibly wonderful ways. One of the things that really pops to my head is the, the importance of technology when dealing with climate change, because we know that we have to switch from fossil-based fuels to clean energies from wind and uh, solar and geothermal, because these are all naturally recurring sources of energy that don't pollute. I mean, they're just completely clean. And the only way that we actually have access to that kind of energy is through technology. That's totally fair. Um, but I guess my big, my only real response to that that's sort of emblematic of the problem with 
the disconnect between the idea and the execution in our cities is if a pro- service is being provided to a city that is that fundamental to our survival and it is not done so unilaterally to all members of that population, then you are committing an atrocity and an act of violence against the people that are not being served by it. That's my response. So that tells me that we have to look at technology from all angles. Mm -hmm. Basically, the common thread that you pull at to unravel all of how we got to this specific place in this country, the thread you have to pull on is the thread of white supremacy. Because everything, (sighs) everything, everything boils back down to white supremacy. It is America's original sin. You sent me into a little bit of a shock last week again. You said to me... Mom, white supremacy is actually the umbrella under which all of these other isms live. It is. The way we other people. That's where you get uh, ableism because of eugenics, because of the idea of a superior. We must be have perfect DNA. Therefore, disab- that's why disabled people get treated like dirt. It's also where you get it supports classism. It's basically everything in this country, if you peel it back, it stems from the mantle of white supremacy, All, including modern policing, by the way, including modern policing, who were the original slave catchers. Those are words that I have not associated necessarily with white supremacism. But when I started to think about it, and I was really upset, actually, not at you, but the fact that I had to rethink this thing and realize that, oh, my God, the misogyny that I've experienced in my life, which is a lot of it, is really about white supremacism, especially white male supremacism. But it's white supremacism because white women are also, they also um, have a special privilege, right? How white supremacy functions is it manages to convince groups that are harmed by it. White women, poor white people, queer white people, they are all harmed by white supremacy in one way or another. But because of white supremacy, because the way it functions, because it tells you at least you're white, you're better because you're white. It keeps poor white people in line. It keeps white women who want to earn the approval of white men in line. And more so, and it also can sucker in non-white people who become tokens, who allow, who basically, because it gives them safety in that moment, they try to align themselves with white supremacy. You don't have to be white to be a foot soldier for white supremacy. You don't have to be white to enable it or to act it or to carry it out. I mean, the black community, anti-blackness is a specific offshoot of white supremacy that is more useful when describing this behavior than racism is. Because non-white people are anti-black all the time, including my own. The Latino community is very, very guilty of this. This idea that because I am not white, I can't be racist. No, non-black people of color are anti-black constantly in the same way that white people enact white supremacy constantly. A lot of it is subliminal. This is why it's about deprogramming and examining the way we think about things and why we have certain instincts and why we have certain impulses and why our mind jumps to certain conclusions when we hear about things. If we want to build from the Declaration of Independence, we have to acknowledge that it was a document that was written by white supremacists. And we have to reckon with that. And that doesn't mean... Oh, this mean is so painful. This is so painful for I me get to it. hear. I get it's it. So you're, a, Mom, painful. you're an immigrant. I get it. 
the, especially it is hard to hear that about because of what the United States has been has represented to so many immigrants. I understand especially why this is so hard as a baby boomer and as an immigrant for you to hear. But that's why it's important because we have to reckon with where this country really came from, what it has really represented on a global scale and how that impacts the systems that we create within it. Because I do think that technology is the way that we can, I don't know, save ourselves. Because, I mean, all we have is forward. We can't go back. Anything that's behind us, it's done. We can learn from it. We have the responsibility to learn from it. We could build a society that lifts all of us up. That is, But the problem is you have people who have just enough that they don't want to let go what they have to try to fix this on a bigger level. You have to you have to get rid of this idea that if this person rises, I will sink. Because in our current system, if that's true, what that tells me isn't I need to hold my neighbor down. What that tells me is this system is garbage. It is a garbage system that we created. That's the good news. We can create a different one. But we are kind of running out of time to do it. You're right. The existential crisis of climate change, we don't have much time. And all of that, when you think about a baseline need, cities need to address in addition to just the normal needs, right, that we have. We now need to take that. The day-to-day needs, we now need to take into account this existential challenge of climate change, which will and is already impacting people of color. The hardest. The hardest. Right. So and and economically disadvantaged, even economically disadvantaged white people. Yeah, that's it's hitting them the hardest. So we hope to be able to educate through this series, including ourselves. We're educating ourselves as much as we're educating anybody else. So we want to be able to stimulate conversation. We want people to be able to be brave and empathetic and to really get outside their box and to, to think about the world as, it, as other people are living it, we're ready to really redefine what is smart in our cities. So it is about technology, but it's also about how we, it, it's about empathy. It's about how we make sure that all of us are able to rise together. And we do want this to be interactive. This is about my mom. This is about me. This is about anyone who gives us the time of day, which by the way, Smash that like and subscribe, tell your friends, all of that stuff. Check out our Patreon, follow us on, if it's a social media platform, just assume we have one and go follow us on it, honestly. Like, you guys know how this works at this point. And I look forward to very hard discussions with our audience, with Anna, with our audience, um, and on the various platforms that they're going to be challenging me, a baby boomer who can't stand social media, to be on. She really but I'm can. going to do it. I can't stand it, but you know what? I get it. I get how important it is. So teach me. That's the plan. We'd love to have you join us. We'd love to have your friends join us. We'd love to have your cat join us. My name is Anna. I'm here with Debbie, my mother, and this is Smart City Diaries. We're signing off. See you next time. Mm-hmm.